Well, I do greet you in the name of the Lord, and I welcome you on this Lord's Day evening. I have not been able to say that in a very long time. As we continue our series, The Things We Do. Three weeks ago, Pastor John helped us to consider the biblical command to gather on the Lord's Day and showed us the rich benefits that are afforded to us by God when we gather for worship. In our second week of this series, Pastor John again helped us to consider prayer as a means of grace as we learned of both the biblical command for corporate prayer and also, once again, the benefits that are provided for us when we, the people of God, come before God together in prayer. And last week, our brother Bobby helped us to consider the public reading of Scripture as a means of grace. We learned that when the infallible and errant word of God is read in our hearing, it is an avenue. We say means of grace. It is an avenue through which God provides grace to those who have been given ears to hear. And now this morning or this evening, uh, with the Lord's help, we will seek to explore the biblical command. Here it comes of tithing. Tithing. I said here it comes because I, I, I want you to brace yourself for that word. And even as you hear that word tithing, I'd like to ask you and you can answer it to yourself. You don't need to answer aloud. How does that word hit you when you first hear it? Let me say it again for you. Tithing. Is it a word that causes you to, to cringe as the word Sabbath once caused you to cringe? Is it a word that causes you to feel uh, discomfort or guilt? Shame even. Let me say to you that there are some. Not all, but some who have had terrible experiences in former churches where the subject of money was taught from a heretical position and where funds were used and abused for personal gain, where pastors were on the church's account, riding up in luxurious cars, dressing in luxurious clothes as they were continuing to enforce more and more money. Upon the congregation. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you that I understand that experience far too well. And I do understand how this subject could cause some discomfort. But rest assured, we will not be addressing this subject from a heretical view. Especially from the heretical view that you and I have both experienced in our past. We are also not intending with this study to create guilt or any kind of shame. With this teaching, but rather we are simply intending to teach what God says about tithing and allow God's Holy Spirit to conform our hearts to his word and to obey that which he has shown us. Amen. So then what is the tithe? Are we still commanded or obligated to obey the command to tithe or does the command of tithing belong only to the Old Testament? Are you with me? Or, or maybe to say it another way, is the tithe a law that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ? A law that you are no longer obligated to obey. Let that question sink in. 
I, I may repeat this statement a few times through these teachings, and there will be three on this particular subject. This teaching is not intended to answer all of your questions concerning tithing. But I do pray that they will be able to answer most of your questions about tithing. Brothers and sisters, we must be aware of this fact. And I heard this from Dr. Sam Waldron. Someone will tell you how much to give. Someone's going to tell you how much to give. It it, it is either going to be a pastor, yourself, or God. Someone is going to tell you how much to give. It is either going to be a pastor, Lord forbid a televangelist, a pastor, yourself, or God. And I say, as Dr. Waldron said, and I say, as the prophet David said, let me fall into the hands of God. Let me fall into the hands of God rather than in the hands of men. On this subject, I would want to know what God says rather than what man says. Amen. And I believe that we must begin our teaching with confronting an issue that I wrestled with when I first began to study God's word. And that is this. It is the belief that tithing is no longer applicable to the people of God. I wonder if you maybe you've struggled with this because it was a law that has been done away with in Christ or fulfilled in Christ. Anybody have that view that tithing is no longer applicable to the people of God because tithing was a law that's been done away with with the Old Testament. Tithing has been fulfilled in Christ. I wonder if any of you have had that belief or hold that belief today. Here's another one that you may or may not believe. That everything in the Old Testament is completely divorced from the New Testament. I'll say that again. I wonder if your belief is that everything from the Old Testament is divorced from everything in the New Testament. To say it another way. That everything in the Old Testament is completely fulfilled in the New Testament and is no longer applicable to the people of God. And therefore, we are no longer under its obligation. Brothers and sisters, is that the case? Is it true that the Old Testament is completely divorced from the New Testament? Let me just say, let me pause uh, a really hard push on the brakes. I understand two things right now. I understand that most of you have friends who are at parties celebrating a game. Mind off of that. I understand that secondly, this is not the funnest subject for you to hear while that's going on. Okay? As I say that, I say that to say this to you. This is so important for you to understand. So as best as you can, unless we need to turn the air on very, very cold in here. As best as you can, try your best to pay careful attention to what we're talking about tonight because it is for your own benefit. And Brother Ray, could you please turn the air on? Thank you. Just for a little bit, Ray. Is it true that everything, and listen how I say that, is it true that everything, and I'll say that with quotations, everything that is in the Old Testament is fulfilled? In the New Testament, and therefore we are free from any commands of the law? Some would like to believe so. 
One of the ways in which false doctrine has continually undermined genuine Christianity is, is by divorcing Christianity from its Old Testament background and foundations. And listen, and exaggerating the contrast between the two Testaments. Did you hear that? One of the ways that, that false doctrines have undermined true Christianity is by attempting to divorce Christianity from its Old Testament background. And its foundations. And, and by also exaggerating the, the, the contrast or differences between the two testaments. The first heresy to attempt to divorce Old Testament from the New Testament. Exaggerating the contrast between the two testaments was a, a, a heresy called Marcionism. Marcionism taught that the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament. Which is similar to Gnosticism. The Marcians taught that the God of the Old Testament was, was one who was fleshly and cruel and angry, while the God of the New Testament was full of grace and love and mercy. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar? Of course it does. Why did it sound so familiar? It's that very reason why people don't read the Old Testament, but love reading the New Testament. Because they see that there is somehow a, a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. That somehow they are different gods. They believe that while in the Old Testament God is, is wrathful and, and, and vengeful, while in the New Testament God is, is loving and merciful. Brothers and sisters, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is one. And we praise God that the church of God rejected this, this heresy of Marcionism. But since that time, there have been many systems of thought that have exaggerated the differences between the two testaments. Now, as we progress, you may in the back of your mind be asking yourself continually, what does all this have to do with tithing? I would like you to be patient. We are going to build an argument for you. And as we do, we're going to take the scenic route. The long way. And as we do, pay careful attention to the arguments that we're building because they are going to eventually lead us to our destination. Tonight we have just three questions. And we hope in our short time together that we are able to answer with God's help those three questions. Here's our first question. And remember, we're building a foundation. First question. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Number one. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Now, remember, we're, we're, we're trying to demolish the notion that there is great contrast between Old Testament and New Testament. Brothers and sisters, is there a contrast? Is there a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes, there is. Is it as exaggerated as they are completely two different gods? Absolutely not. We're going to build our case. How were people in the Old Testament saved? That may seem like an odd question. And for some, it may seem like an obvious question. But it gets to the heart of where we're heading. How were those in the Old Testament saved? We do believe that there is unity between Old Testament and New Testament. This is one of the reasons why we are a Reformed church. We do believe there is unity. Uh, or to say it as the Reformed people say, we believe there is continuity. Right? but not absolute unity or absolute continuity, meaning we can't make one-to-one -one connections between every single thing from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Amen? 
But we do believe that there is unity. Are you with me? You can make connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but not in every single thing. As Pastor Zay said this morning, there are types and antitypes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Or to say it another way, there are shadows in the Old Testament. And there is fulfilled substance in the New Testament. But there is not a type and antitype for every single thing in the Old Testament to the New. Are you with me? Yes? Keep that in mind as we journey forward. Now, concerning our question, how were people in the Old Testament saved? We believe and we affirm that God's people have always been saved in the same way. God's people have always been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Adam to you and I here today. Amen. There is no difference in salvation in the Old Testament. And there is no difference in salvation in the New Testament. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the unfolding of the saving purpose and promise of God. Now, in contrast to the tendency of exaggerated differences between Old Testament and New Testament, Orthodox Christianity, true Christianity, has always taught that Christianity, listen, is the fulfillment of the teachings of the Old Testament. Let's look at a classic passage that uh, teaches exactly what I'm saying. Romans chapter 4. We will be turning to a number of scriptures tonight, so please be prepared. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1 through 8. <clears throat> Romans 4, verse 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How does this passage confirm what we are saying in that salvation in the Old Testament is the same as salvation in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul is dealing with the subject of justification by faith alone. And as he's dealing with this subject, he anticipates an objection, which is why verse one is a question. See, verse one, it's a question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What's Paul anticipating? He's anticipating someone saying, Paul, you have just described for us in Romans chapter three, that there is a righteousness apart from the law. And the law and the prophets bear witness to this fact. How could there be a righteousness apart from the law, Paul? We are justified by obeying the law, aren't we? Is that really what the Old Testament is teaching? And do you see what Paul does? Paul is addressing a promise from God that it has not begun in the New Testament, but was established before the law was, was codified or written on stone tablets. What is that? What is he? What is he? What is he talking about? 
It is that justification by faith alone in Christ and justification by faith alone in Christ has always been the way of salvation. You are only saved by faith. There is no work that you can do to save yourself. And who was the apostle's first example to make his case? The, the apostle appeal, appeals to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. What does he say? He quotes Genesis 3, or 15, 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham is declared righteous. That righteousness that God declared upon Abraham came before what? The Ten Commandments. God called Abraham righteous before the law was ever written on stone tablets. So if someone says you must obey the law in order to be declared righteous, Paul's argument is Abraham was declared righteous before there was a law. Are you with me? What's Abraham's point? Abraham's point is this. That God's way of salvation has always been by faith and by faith alone. How was Abraham justified by God without the law? Abraham believed God. Abraham believed the promise of God. And God counted him righteous because of his faith. But there was a law. And it was on his heart. But Paul does this. If Abraham, the great giant of the Old Testament, is not sufficient uh, evidence enough for you, then Paul appeals to the great giant slayer. David, who confessed that God counts one righteous apart from the law, by faith. You have Abraham before the law, and David after the law, and they are both confirming this point, that there is no distinction between how one is saved in the Old Testament and how one is saved in the New Testament. It has always been by salvation, or by faith and by faith alone. Now, let's keep this unity or this theme of unity, not absolute unity, but unity between these two testaments going. Here's our second question. Who are the people of God? Once again, this may seem like an obvious question. Who are the people of God? Are the ethnic Jews the people of God? Who are the people of God? Followed up by, are the ethnic Jews the people of God? Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that the people of God is and always has been the church of God. The church of God is the true Israel of God. The church did not replace Israel as the people of God. The church those who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation have always been the true people of God. We stand in unity with the Old Testament, with Old Testament Israel. The, the church is not a new invention of God, if you will. The church of God, the true people of God. We did not begin in the book of Acts at Pentecost. The church of God, the people of God began when God first gave a promise of redemption and also gave his people, the church, faith to trust in that promise of redemption and in that seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter 2. should be one page over if you stayed in your place. Romans chapter 2. And verse 28. 
Romans 2 and verse 28. For no one is a Jew, listen, who is merely one outwardly. That's ethnically. Nor by circumcision, nor by any kind of work or physical. But a Jew is one, how? Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? Of the heart. By whom? The spirit. Not by the letter. You are not a people of God because you have been born into a specific ethnic line. Not by the flesh. Not because you have performed a specific work. Not through circumcision. And not through the letter. Not by you keeping a particular command. You are the people of God by the Spirit of God. The Apostle describes all true believers in Christ, listen, as true Jews. Not that we are Jews in a nationalistic or ethnic sense, but that we are Jews in the sense that we are God's people, the elect of God, those who have been chosen by God and given faith to believe in his son. The apostle tells us a true Jew is not one in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. It is circumcision of the heart. What does Paul go on to say in Galatians? You can write this down. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. What what was the, the card that the Pharisees so often used against Christ? We are children of Abraham. We are Abraham's seed. We are Abraham's offspring. And what does Paul say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Then you are true people of God, not because of your ethnicity, but because of who you have placed your faith in. Could you shut the air off, brother? Christians are those who are the offspring of Abraham by way of the Holy Spirit. And Paul concludes his demolition of works-based system of Judaism in Galatians 6.15 by saying, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation and for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That is you. The apostle calls those who do not see circumcision or uncircumcision as a work that could provide a right standing for them before God. He calls those who trust only in Christ as the true Israel of God, the true people of God. And this, listen, This is taught only in the New Testament. No. This has been true from Adam to today. When Paul wrote what he wrote, it didn't become true when Paul wrote it. It had always been true. You may have grown up believing like I have, that there were actually two people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the non-Jews. The Jews are the special people of God. And God just says, well, you could be my people too. But those are really my people. To use the language of the New Testament, you may have believed that there is an old olive tree and a new olive tree. Brothers and sisters, this idea of there being two people of God is nowhere in the teachings of the church. And it is a heresy. It is a heresy that began in the 1830s in a, in a charismatic church in England. It is not what the Bible teaches. 
Read Romans 11, 15 to 24. You will see that there are not two trees, but one tree planted by God. Two, not two trees, one tree. And where does Paul get this, get this idea of, of there being one people of God? He gets this from the Old Testament, where the Jewish nation is referred to as an olive tree. And they were unbelievers. So they were cut off. And those who were not necessarily ethnic Jews were grafted in. Not to make two trees. God didn't say, well, let me plant another tree over here. God grafted us into that tree. And we are one people. We, though we are not ethnic Jews, have become citizens of God's kingdom. We are the people of God. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What's the point? The point is this. That when we look to the Old Testament, we must not always think that we are reading something that is completely disjointed or cut off from the New Testament. Are you with me? When we read the Old Testament, we must not read something that we believe in our own minds is completely divorced from the New Testament. This means... That we cannot take the view that the Old Testament is not authoritative. Or, or, or that it, 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 we must avoid the notion that unless something is reiterated in the New Testament. Then it's not applicable to us. That is a false view, brothers and sisters. To say the Old Testament is no longer apl- applicable to me. Or unless I see it in the New Testament, then I won't believe it. Not so. Not so. Let's conclude with our third question. Is the believer still obligated to obey the law? Is the believer still obligated to obey the law? This must be at the center of our concern this evening. And why do we ask this question? Because if we are making the case that the Old Testament is not divorced from the New Testament, then we must ask and acknowledge That that brings the law front and center to our discussion. Because what was front and center in the Old Testament? The law. Obeying the law. What is the law? Always ask that question. If someone introduces you to something, ask them, what do you mean by that? Define that for me. Explain that to me. What is the law? The law is that which God had first written. On the hearts of all those who were created in his image, first and foremost. What is the law? It is that first, primarily, that which is written on the hearts of image bearers of God, all mankind. It is is that to which all men by nature know instinctively that they must obey. Or that which is a violation of the law of nature. What is that? It is idolatry. Worshiping other gods. It is profaning the name of God. Taking God's name in vain. It is failing to rest and observe a day of worship. It is murder. It is lying. Stealing. Adultery. Disobedience to your parents. It is coveting. All of these laws have been written. Not just on stone tablets. But on your very heart and conscience. There is ceremonial laws as well. Civil laws that were provided for Israel to separate them from the other nations and to identify them as the true people of God. 
These things included celebrations, sacrifices, and also Seventh-day Sabbath. I'll say that last one again so that you hear me clearly. Seventh-day Sabbath. So then, what law is the believer still to obey? Is the believer obligated to obey any law? The Apostle Paul shed some light on this issue for us. Please turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Pause there. The apostle says, this is right. This is the way that God has ordered the parent-child relationship. And God has created this to be a law written on the hearts of men. Children, it is your duty by God. To obey your parents. The apostle then, after appealing to the, the law of nature, then appeals to the moral law of Moses. Verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. Why? That it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land. Do you know anybody who's lived a really long time who was disobedient to their parents? Maybe you do. That's just a a, a random question. I don't know why I asked it. The New Testament assumes that the Old Testament is a flood that flows right down into the New Testament. Did you hear that? The New Testament assumes that the Old Testament is a flood that flows right down into the New Testament. First Timothy chapter one. And verse eight, this may be the last one I ask you to turn to. First Timothy chapter one and verse number eight. Why was the previous verse read to show that there is a law that you are still obligated to obey? The Apostle Paul makes mention of one of them obeying your parents. First Timothy chapter one and verse eight. Listen to what the Apostle says. First Timothy chapter one and verse eight. Now we know that the law is good. You see that? If one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. That's all of us. That's Paul's point. No one is just. No one is righteous. This law is for all people. If you are perfect, you don't need the law. But no one is perfect. Even Christ obeyed the law. Going on. Yes. For the ungodly sinners... For the ungodly profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the law or in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Brothers and sisters, did you see what the apostle did there? Paul cites generally and then paul cites specifically every one of the ten commandments that list there is the ten commandments 
And he doesn't just cite it as, as, as uh, just to cite it. He cites it as, as being relevant, but also obligatory for the believer. Meaning, you and I are obligated to obey this law. The apostle was not just saying, brothers and sisters, these are good lines, good guidelines that you should follow. Rather, this is God's law for your life. But, but did the Lord Jesus say that he abolished the law and the Old Testament? Isn't that what Christ said? Is that what Christ said? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes, he says, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least, last in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Paul or what what Paul and the New Testament are doing, they are practicing the fulfillment principle of the Old Testament. And that is this. The Old Testament is not abolished. Jesus said that it is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled in many different ways. How is it fulfilled? The, the light of the Old Testament, it it shines through the prism of Christ. How so? Christ is our temple. Christ is our priest. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our Passover, etc. That there is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, mostly though of the ceremonial laws of God. So that we can say we don't have a temple anymore. Because Christ is our temple and we now are the temple. We don't have a priest anymore because Christ is now our priest. He is our mediator. We don't give sacrifices anymore because Christ gave the ultimate once and for all sacrifice. We don't celebrate the so-called Passover anymore. We now celebrate the resurrection because Christ is our Passover. All of these things have been fulfilled in Christ. And yet the Old Testament is not abolished. It's fulfilled in Christ. That which is not fulfilled in Christ still applies to us today, but in a new way. But think about this as we conclude. Is Christ our tithe? Christ is our temple. Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is our Passover. Christ is our uh, priest. But is he our tithe? When we think of the tithe, we think, well, it's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. We don't have to do that anymore. That was part of the law. Really? What law? Here's a better question for you. How was it fulfilled in Christ? Huh? If we say it's the Old Testament and it's no longer applicable to us because Christ fulfilled it, how did he fulfill it? If that was fulfilled in Christ, how was it a type? And how is Christ its antitype? The tithe was given to the priest, not performed by the priest. 
What was it given to the priest for? For the upholding of the temple and for the support of the priest. Is Christ our tithe and therefore we must no longer tithe? Do we believe that the tithe was a part of the law that Christ fulfilled and therefore we are no longer obligated to it? It has been annulled. No, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you where I'm coming from. This is me coming from a Reformed Baptist view. This is not me speaking from a charismatic word of faith or any other kind of other theology. This is true biblical teaching. No. And I have labored to show you that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not unrelated, but they are related. Not in an absolute sense, but there is some unity. And this, the tithe, it does carry over. Why? It was not a ceremonial law. And it was not fulfilled in Christ. It is a law that is translated, a command from God, translated from the Old Testament to the New Testament that still belies, uh, applies to you today. Let me ask you a question. Tell me how you apply this to a law that's been fulfilled. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Can you really say, oh, yes, that was a ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ? I can't. And if you can, I don't understand how you can. Or how about this one? And we all know this really well because it's been used to manipulate people. Will a man rob God? It's a shame how we run from that verse. Pastor Zay did a wonderful job teaching in Malachi on this verse. It's a shame how we, we, we almost refuse to read this verse because it has been used for manipulation so many times. But there is a principle here that is absolute and from God. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. I'm not telling you robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions, God says. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is, until there is no more need. Uh, this has been taken to the extreme. Somebody needs to give a million dollars. The Lord's telling me there's ten people that need to give a million dollars. And if you do, you will have a hundred million dollars, tenfold. But that's not really what God is promising. He's promising that you won't be in need. Have you eaten well today? Do you need more food? I think we can honestly say, no, I don't. Do you need more cars? It's a need, not a want, but need. As you are faithful in what? In giving the tithe. Then God does what for his people? He provides. Simple as that. I understand that this verse has been used by false teachers to give false promises and also to, to produce shame. And also to try to excuse it away. That doesn't apply to us anymore. No, God's talking to you. You can't say he's not, talking to, he's not talking to me here, but he's talking to me everywhere else. 
you and I, we are still obligated to give to God a tenth of what God has provided for us. Isn't it? Doesn't not all belong to God? And are we left to wonder? Is man left to wonder? Or left to man's opinions on this issue? No. The Apostle Paul tells us that the Old Testament law applies to us here today. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 13. And we are closing. Do you not know? This is interesting. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from where? The temple. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Paul is speaking about those from the Old Testament, the, the priests who served in the temple. They worked there. That was their employment. Therefore, they lived off of what was given to the temple. They ate food offered at the temple. They lived off of the money that was tithed by the people of God. It provided a living for them as they served God and God's people. Listen to what the apostle does. He says that was the Old Testament. In the same way, verse 14, see that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Did you hear that? The apostle is saying, not Pastor Antonio, the apostle is saying that just as the priest, those who served in the temple, gained their living through serving in the temple, so should those who preach God's word, the shepherds of God's flock, be supported by God's people. As you do what? As you tithe. Not, I think I'll give five bucks today. Has the Lord provided for you? Then God's command is you give a tenth of what God has given you. And God will provide for your needs and for those who are shepherding you. Paul is making a direct link from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's not saying, listen, guys, that Old Testament stuff, it's not relatable, not even an issue. Don't worry about it. Rather, he's making a direct link in the same way that those who served in the temple were taken care of by the people of God as they tithe. So should those who are shepherds of God's people be taken care of as the people of God tithe in obedience to God. How were they supported? Again, the tithe. Paul doesn't say that's all been fulfilled. And where did he get that from? The Old Testament. Numbers 1831. And it was this that led A.W. Pink to say this. Do, do you not know that they which minister about holy things live off the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are packers or partakers of the altar. In the New Testament dispensation, the tithe, supported, the tithe that supported the Old Testament saints shall support the saints of the New Testament. I wish we had a packed house here today. All the first Christians knew that tithing was God's law and practiced it as it was instructed by the apostles of Christ. Well, what about Jesus? What did Jesus say? I want you to see this and we'll, do, we'll be done. I told you we'd turn to one more. The game's over. Who cares? Matthew 23, 23. Yes, Matthew 23, 23. 
Woe to you. Who? Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Is he uh, condemning them for tithing? Look what he says. You ought to have done these things. Or these you ought to have done. Without neglecting the others. Jesus did not say the tithe is irrelevant. It's no longer applicable to you. No one cares about the tithe. But Jesus says, you should have done these things. You should have tithed. Continue to tithe. Tithe the mint, dill, and cumin. But also, be merciful. Show justice and faithfulness. You should have tithed and also obeyed the weightier matters. But he does not condemn the tithe, does he? No, rather he upholds it and exposes hypocrisy of what the Pharisee was saying. Look how much I gave. Yes, Jesus is saying, but you are a gossip and a backbiter. Your tithe is wonderful, but I would rather now not to say you shouldn't give it. Give these things, but don't forget these things as well. He doesn't just say stop giving and start Showing mercy. He says, keep giving and start showing mercy. Jesus doesn't say, don't, don't give. Just stop gossiping. He's saying, give and stop gossiping. All this comes back now, brothers and sisters, to our interpretive framework. How will you read and understand the Bible? Will you see this as two separate Bibles or one where God's word still applies to us today. And I think we, we learn this best from our teachings on the Sabbath. When we gather, it is a wonderful time to honor God with our giving. To show, as we will see in the coming weeks, that we believe that everything belongs to God. And that we will trust that as we give, he provides for us everything we need. Not any more and not any less, but that God provides for us. I have seen this faithfully in my parents. We were never rich. We were never poor. God always provided every single one of our needs. I see this in my own home. As a principle has been laid out by my parents and now by the word of God. That we're not rich. And we're not poor. But we have everything that we need. We must not take a false view. That tithing, which means tenth, was from the Old Testament. And that now we just need to give. Just give. Hey, and don't let anybody put, bring you under, under any compulsion. Don't let anybody say you're giving out of necessity. I won't. I won't bring you under any compulsion. God will. This is what God commands. Am I going to force you to give? Absolutely not. You're going to do... With this word, whatever you're going to do with this word, when it is all said and done. But I won't be held accountable for it. You will. Because I've done my job. The tent still applies to God's people. I pray that you have seen just the beginnings of that today.
And next week we will take this a step further. Let us pray.